Welcome to the UK Educators Community Podcast, hosted by Sid, an award-winning science communicator, serial entrepreneur, and educational consultant. In today's episode, we are going to be interviewing John Yates. He is an entrepreneur who runs Priority Learning, and today we are going to be discussing the topic of spotting opportunities. Welcome to the very first episode of the UK Educators podcast. We've got Sid, me, and we've got John with us today, John Yates. And we're going to be talking about business opportunities and spotting opportunities. And we've just had a discussion about what the tagline should be for today. And it's about making it look like we know what we're doing in business when half the time we have no clue because we're making things up as we go along. And I think especially this year where there's been so many changes and COVID and everything that's been happening. This this is so kind of relevant to this year in particular. Um, And we can't plan. We can't uh, foresee what's going to happen. We can't foresee whether there's going to be another lockdown, though I think there will be. How do we go about doing business when there's so much uncertainty in the world at the moment? So first of all, let's welcome John. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Um, It's We've always had lots of different conversations over Messenger, but I think this is the first time I'm having a face-to-face, well, on Zoom, conversation with you. Oh, we've had conversations where we've, like, recorded our voices, like, voice conversations, but I think this is the first time I've ever had a conversation conversation. Yeah, so welcome, and this is the very first uh, podcast. Oh, we've already got people liking it, so oh. that's that's a good start. So we've got people watching us at the moment. Oh, there's seven people watching this live. That's brilliant, but for today, you've got us live. So if you've got any questions, anything that you want to drop in, please do that. I've got my phone switched on so I can see your messages coming in. So, John, tell us a bit about you and the type of work that you do. And how did we actually meet? Right, well, first one of those questions, a bit about me. I run my tutoring company, Priority Learning, and it all sort of came about because I was tutoring through university, just through tutorful, and got to the point where I, I, I was quite lucky. I got on tutorful quite early, so I was one of only three tutors in Lancaster. Oh, wow. So I got a lot of business quite quickly. And then just, I did like two weeks of economics in uni and learned about supply and demand. So I thought, well, I'll just increase my prices. Until basically, I because it, it got to the point where I was handing in assignments late because I was just doing too much tutoring. Until that point, as a student, I'd only ever sort of worked in pubs and bars, earning sort of seven pounds an hour, eight pounds an hour, and suddenly I was earning twenty pounds an hour. I was like, this is amazing. At one point, I had like ten hours of lessons a week, and two hundred quid a week to a student is like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, a lot of money. And I just sort of kept putting the prices up because I just thought, well, I don't want any more students, so I'll just put the price up so no one asks me for more tutoring. But people kept asking. And then I got someone on £35 a week and they booked two lessons a day. So I was earning £70 a day, seven days a week as as a student. And I just thought, like, wow, this is crazy. And I've been thinking for a while that I wanted to go into teaching because I love maths. I, I do it for fun. I've always loved maths. Um, and I just thought, well, I want to do maths as a job. And I'd spoken to a few people about teaching, and most of the teachers I'd spoken to had said, oh, no, don't do it. You'll quit after five years. 
Um, you'll get told what to do by people who've never taught a lesson in their lives. And I just thought, no, okay. So then I, I looked at um, investment banking and things like that. But I kept doing the tutoring and I kept enjoying it. Um, so I just thought, well, uh, at that point, I, I was earning about £300, £400 a week just as a student. And I thought, well, I've, I've been turning people down. I'm not doing bad. Why not give it a go and see if I can actually do this as a job? I only need to increase it by a little bit to then earn what I would earn as a teacher. So why not give it a try? And then I had, well, that along with, I, I stepped homework after every lesson. That's just something I, I did from the start because in maths, you only get better at it by practicing it. If if you if I just told them what to do and showed them what to do the next week, if they didn't do the homework, they'd have forgotten it and we have to do it all again. And so I was sort of like downloading worksheets and sending them via email. And then the student was printing them off. And I just thought that's a really bad way of doing it. We've got technology for all sorts these days, but there's no handy way to set homework. Were you always online then or did you do face to face as well? It was face to face for the first year. And when Tutorful, I didn't even know online tutoring existed until Tutorful did their online classroom. Uh, which was rubbish. And then I started looking for other online classrooms, found Bitpaper. And then start, Bitpaper was so good, I started using Bitpaper in the in-person lesson. Because it saved me fortune on like normal paper as well, because I was going mm. to books and books of it. And then I just thought like, then I started to set homework on Bitpaper, dragging and dropping, which was not bad. But then I thought, well, I, I don't want to do marking. It's taken me forever to mark. So why not have a way things to be automatically marked hence why i'm developing the app that i've been talking about quite quite a lot in various conversations so in terms of business knowledge and business background you do you come from a business background is your family in business or is this completely new to you yeah my dad owns his own financial advice um business it's just him and his secretary so and and that's really it he's not an ambitious businessman he's sort of he, he does what he likes, he does what he knows, he's very good at it and he's not concerned about growing it or anything like that. He tried a couple of times to take on extra staff to grow it, uh, but just didn't like it. So it sort of stuck with what he knew and what he was good at. So in that sense, there's a, a business background and he's given me a bit of advice here and there along the way. But in terms of growing a business, that's not something he's really done. So. You're very ambitious, right? So you've got big plans. Um, and whenever I talk to you, I'm like, wow, John, you're thinking big. But we were just talking earlier that it's very uncertain at the moment. So how how do we take opportunities as they, like, do you plan or do you just kind of go with the flow? I'm the latter. I don't really have big plans in place. I have a vision, but not plans as such. So how do you kind of go about doing business and how has this year been for you? Well, in terms of planning and making it up as I go along, a bit of both. With regards to the app that I'm developing, obviously a plan's needed for that and what to make. First first time around we did it, there was it was more of a bare bones plan and it went completely wrong. So we're having to start again from scratch and we've got a much more detailed plan in place now. But in terms of other aspects of the business, currently the most successful part of it, which is the online group courses I run, I came up with when I was like falling asleep one evening and I just thought, oh, online, like live online courses, that'd be a good idea because I, I was home educated and I did course, which was basically just, I got sent a textbook 
put in like a folder form, just a binder with literally the words of the textbook copy and pasted in. And I had to pay about 350 quid per course for the privilege of that and was left to teach it myself. And I just thought, well, why not Why not have like actual teaching as part of a course? That's what you'd expect, taught things, rather than just giving a book, there you go. Because you could just you know, go to a bookstore and buy a book and a textbook and teach it yourself. And then that took off a lot. The first year, it was about 20, 25% of the business that we did. This year, it's more like two thirds, three quarters of our total business is just through the courses. And that was just something I, I came up with one evening and just, I didn't even, Jetty, my now fiance and business partner, didn't even speak to her about it. I just sort of did it. I was like, oh, by the way, I've done this. And she was like, you didn't speak to me about it. And I was like, yeah, I just thought it was a good idea then, which is, has been a recurring theme. I can see that there's a theme here. So like the idea of having an issue with the worksheet, setting homework, you were like, oh, okay let's find a solution for that. Let's create an app. And then with the finding like an issue with home educated kids, having just a folder sent home to them and you found a solution to that and you put it across to the world and people just snapped it. Right. So you just kind of sense a problem and you kind of put a solution forward. And I guess that's what business is. It's finding an issue with something that's currently not working, a pain point um, as marketers would call it. And then actually going out there and then, finding those people that have that pain point and presenting them the solution and going, I can solve this for you. Um, and that's essentially what you've done. Exactly. And that, that is what business is. You find the problem that the market has, find a solution to it, and the market then pays you for that solution. The, be- the best solutions are solutions that the market will continue to pay you for, rather than just the solution that the market pays you for once for example a product like um if there was a problem with locks on doors not being reliable and you made a, a new lock for a door that could never be broken people are only going to buy that once for solution but it's not a great business because once everyone's bought the lock that's it whereas with education there's an upside and downside there's a high churn rate obviously because a lot of students in year 10s and 11s or your 12s and 13s, and you're only going to have those two years. And you've then got to continually find new business. But there's always going to be kids that need tutoring for as long as the school system isn't perfect, which is probably going to be forever. So, yeah, it's just finding, that's what business is. The way that when I see people saying, oh, how do I grow my business? Find a problem, provide a solution. Yep. That's essentially it. And I think my first business that I set up about a decade ago, I tried doing it the other way around, where I tried to find different approach to education without people realizing that they needed that approach. And then I was trying to convert people into seeing that my solution was the answer that they were looking for without directly kind of going, this is solving your answer, which is a lot more difficult to do. I think when you're when you're looking at a solution which doesn't directly solve the problem, but solves like a bigger aspect of education, it's a difficult business to market. But if you've got a problem and a solution and they fit in nicely together, you, you've got your market already there. It's a self-made market. Uh, so 20, 2020, the year that like the whole world kind of came to a standstill. So you said that you plan. What were your plans that couldn't go ahead? And what did you adapt to instead? Do you know what? Not many plans couldn't go ahead. There was there were some plans that I'd had for next year forward, because when when we started development of the app, which was well the first version of it, which 
fail. I can't talk about it too much because it's an ongoing legal case, but that was a year and a half ago. And I I saw the long-term future of tutoring in online. I, the, I think the long-term future of education as a whole is online. So my long-term plan was basically provide a solution to a problem that doesn't quite exist yet. There's murmurs of people having this problem. For example, you know, tutors traveling. If you're traveling even 15 minutes, 15 minute drive to a, a client's house, that means if you've got a lesson at four, four o'clock with that client, you can't have a lesson three till four because you need to give yourself 15 minutes to travel. You can't have a lesson four till five because when you get, sorry, you can't have a lesson five till six because you won't be home until quarter past five. So it's actually taking up three slots based on the assumption that people want lessons on the hour, which most do. So one lesson is taking actually three potential lessons. So not only are you losing travel time, you're, all, you're actually losing three potential slots. So you're getting one hour's work where you could get three. So in terms of, I'm, I'm very focused on time efficiency. Use your time as efficiently as possible, be that working time and relaxation time use it wisely thought that traveling to people's houses wasn't a very good use of time and that it either people will cotton on to that very soon or it'll be very easy to convince people of that once i've got something to offer them it's you know it's not the 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 certain obviously parts of tutoring that are very very difficult but one of the nicer parts of it is you can sit you can you know have the whole like shirt tie pajama bottoms and blanket and no one no one can see from sort of the waist up so you can you know be sat there in your slippers blanket and cough we've all done that right we've all done that during the covid experience <laughs> yeah and um it's that's better than driving around and sitting in someone's house and quite often the environment in someone else's house wasn't great for learning it'd be in the kitchen there'd be someone cooking there'd be little kids running around and obviously you can't do tutoring in the bedroom because of safeguarding issues but if you're doing online tutoring, they can sign in their bedroom on the computer and that's fine. So I just thought, well, the future of tutoring is online, 100%. So the long-term vision of my business was to make it as easy for me as possible to tutor online and then scale that and make it easy for other people as well. So I didn't have to change many plans. I just had to bring some forward. Um, I, I only plan to do about half a dozen online courses all two-year courses starting this year, and I, I'm now doing 16 rather than the six. That I'd wow, that's a lot more. So you've like nearly. So you plan to do six. Yeah. So three times, nearly three times as much as what you had planned. Uh, so business has kind of grown very rapidly for you. But a question from Richard. So Richard has said, I'm a bit like John's dad because I am a one-man band, but very happy to be a small-time sole trader because I'm doing stuff on my own terms. However, just thinking about the bigger picture, do either of you have any tips on how to delegate? Also, how do you maintain the quality of work that isn't done directly by yourself? You know what, that's such a fab question because this is why I didn't scale for seven years because I'm such a control freak and things have to be done in a certain way. Now, I get the impression you're very similar. You want things done to a certain standard in a certain way. What are your plans to, to kind of scale? Is Are you still going to be the central focus? Are you going to be the main teacher? 
um, or are you going to take a step back, which is what I've done. I don't teach as much now. How do you go about doing that? Well, it, I've not, in terms of how do you delegate and ensure high quality work, I wish I had the answer to that. I think if I had the answer to that, I'd be um, charging £1,000 an hour for consultancy. But in, in terms of delegating and what I'm going to do, maths is primarily my area of expertise. That's what I got my degree in. I did a year of physics at university as well before switching to maths. I also tutored chemistry and astronomy. So in terms of, I still want to be the one, sort of the, the go-to guy for my business. And basically I'm looking at what, what parts am I, in comparison, weakest at. They're the ones that, they're the ones to drop first. So possibly, most likely chemistry. I'll stop tutoring chemistry and give that to someone else because in terms of the subjects I teach, how, sort of the confidence level of how sure am I that someone else will do as good or better, chemistry will probably be the first to go. Uh, there's also a lot of marking with chemistry as well. A lot of the answers are worded. In physics, maths in particular, if they've got the correct answer, you can just look for the correct answer when you're marking it. If they've got the correct answer, quick glance at the working, yeah, that all looks fine, tick. Whereas with chemistry, you've got to read it all. So as I spoke before about time efficiency, passing chemistry over to someone else will be the first thing that goes. So that's from the tutoring side, from the actual delivery side. Um, do you have a team that works on the admin side uh, or do you do all the admin your, yourself at the moment? All 7am starts and 11pm finishes, seven days a week. So you are out where I was um a couple of years back to be fair I still carried on doing the admin so I got I the first step I took was to get more people in to do the delivery side at that time I wasn't doing academic based teaching it was workshops but if I didn't scale I wouldn't have been able to open up my recent business so it's interesting that everyone thinks and I think this is a and you might realize this yourself I think it's a mistake to focus on just the delivery I think you need to have an equal balance with the admin side. So with my current business, I've got an equal teaching team as I do admin. They're, they're literally the, the same number of people. And I find that the admin is a bit that used to take me forever. And to replace that initially when I was doing things, I replaced it with three people. So I was doing three people's amount of work in a day. And you're probably doing that as well, which is why you're working such long hours. But how do you get to a point where you feel happy to delegate and I think that's such a difficult question and this is where you really have to look for the right people and I interviewed a lot of people and I think even with the teaching aspect and have you started delegating I think you've got some teaching stuff already don't you not staff as such they're, they're more they're more like I don't even know how to describe it I'm kind of like an agent I guess so you contract them in at the moment yeah it's like yeah. Subcontractors, basically, where basically I have a reasonable amount of traffic to my website and a lot of inquiries. So I basically say to people, um, I'll feature you on my website if I want when I'm full or if I get any requests I can't or don't want to do, I'll pass them on to you. I'll sort out the payments. And if there's any problems, you send them my way. So if you know they, they pay late or they're all for clients. I deal with like the, the crappy side of that. And in return, I, I get a commission. You're known to be like cutthroat. 
on the groups on the tutor groups you're known to be very cutthroat right you're like this is it this is how i do business you take it or you leave it I had to, this is what i preached a couple of weeks ago and it wasn't easy no, normal normally these sort of like this is how it is this you know just people uh, people that are trying it on very quickly realize it isn't going to work i had wasn't trying it on uh, and very much went toe to toe so i really did have to practice what i preached and ended up settling for they basically they had paid for a bunch of courses not turned up to them and wanted their money back and i pointed them to the t's and c's and said well if you don't turn up tough like you you can cancel any time there's there's links everywhere if you want to cancel your membership so their argument was it it wasn't obvious to them and it was or it wasn't clear I basically at that point said, well, I think it is clear, but in order to, well, because reputation is everything with Holmed, and I don't want to get a reputation as sort of a complete mercenary, but I said, what I'll do is I will give you what you think you're owed in vouchers. So you're still not losing business, right? I'm you're getting them back in. The business, and I was basically, they were basically they were basically saying right we're not doing the courses anymore we're leaving and it was basically like i thought that was a bluff because their kids were really engaged in the lessons and really enjoying them are they really going to cut the nose off to spite the face here or are they just trying to get some money back because but did they turn to some did they turn up to some classes yeah they turned up to some they basically booked on everything and only turned up to one or two uh, okay and wanted the money back for the ones they didn't turn up for and I basically just thought, they're not going to cut the nose off the spider face, but I don't want to be completely unfair. So I gave them vouchers and said, you can use those however you like. You can use them with me, another tutor, one-to-ones, um, summer courses. If we run a Christmas course, you can use them for that. The TNC say no refunds. So I'm, I'm not giving you a refund, but I'll give you vouchers. That seemed like the middle ground. But I also said, you still haven't cancelled or changed your membership. Any future, um, I'll make it clear now. So it is, you cannot argue it isn't clear. If you don't change or cancel your membership, you're not getting vouchers or refunds for anything else. The TNCs apply. This is what you find where people expect you to do the work for them. And this is where your app will kind of solve that issue, right? So you won't need as many admin people as probably I've got because your app is going to solve all of that issue where people will clearly know what to expect. Exactly. My, my logic for, in terms of scaling and delegating, I automate as much as possible, let technology do it because I don't know wisely or unwisely I trust technology more than people if technology goes wrong you can shout at it if people go wrong you can't really shout at them I think the opposite is true you can shout at people you can't shout at the technology because it makes no difference to it. Well, people get upset and you feel bad technology does. I don't know how I feel about this because I'm having issues with Google at the moment right so I can't log into a personal account that I haven't logged in in years because all those emails get forwarded to a different account so I've never logged into that and now, because they've implemented, they've changed their policy, that if an account is inactive, everything gets deleted after two years, yeah. right? So I'm like, okay, I need to find the password for that so I can log in to make sure that those emails always get forwarded and they don't just like suddenly get deleted and it becomes inactive. So I'm struggling to log in and I can't speak to anyone because everything with them is, there's no human, right there's no human you can put questions up and the bots will answer it but you can't get to a person and that frustration of it's a unique situation where i can't remember the password 
I've not been logged into a device for over three or four years. So I can't log in using a laptop that I once had because none of my laptops work um, or a phone that I once had because I don't have the phones anymore. So I think technology has a place, but I think people still want to speak to people. Yeah, well, that's why I'm developing my own technology. So how is your technology going to be different? I'm going to be in control of it. So, if something, so because if something goes wrong, I don't need to find someone to fix it. Mm. It's just, well, the, the guy that's developing it lives upstairs. So if something goes wrong, you know, at dinner, I'll just say, oh, this went wrong today. Can you fix it? Yeah, I'll do it in the morning. It's not like you don't have to go through. There's not like a long process to get something fixed. So it's going to be different in that I, I'm i on pretty much every tutoring page that exists, I think. And I've looked at all the gripes of tutors, looked at all the problems and basically find solutions for them. So obviously there's, there's going to be some problems I'm, I'm not going to solve. There's going to be some tutors it doesn't work great for. And it's technology, it's an app. There's probably going to be one or two glitches here and there. I want to make myself as available as possible. So if something does go wrong, go straight to me, straight to developers, fixed. It's not like a long, lengthy process if something isn't right. And it is built, it's not built for schools and then adapted for tutors. It's not Google Classroom, which is sort of built for everything and nothing at the same time. It's not Microsoft Teams built for everything, but doesn't really work well for anything. It's literally built purely, it's niche. It's built purely for either individual tutors or small tutoring companies. And the point of it working well is because it's going to be niche. So how do you see this growing do you think 2021 is going to be the year where that part of your business is going to just increase rapidly because i think now's the time right covid has shown that everything can be done online um and lots of tutors that have never tried because i was a big believer that online didn't work and i only first dabbled online september last year so 2019 where there were a couple of kids that were too far from me to 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 actually come to me even though I've had kids travel four hours to come and see me it's just not practical to do it on a week-to-week basis so I dabbled with online had one class and then until Covid I wasn't willing to try doing other bits online but it's worked it's shown that it's possible so do you think now is the right time for you to launch and to actually make this really work yeah well the plan was to launch in July that was before Covid even happened because like I said we started it a year and a half ago before Covid was a thing the plan was to launch in July, but because the first developer made such a hash of it, that's start again, so it's going to end up being sort of next June, probably next May, June, that it's the first part of it is finally done. I want it done as soon as possible for the, the reasons you just said, because I'm not going to be, I, I don't want to reveal too much about what exactly it's going to do and sort of a future plan for it, but I'm sure that I'm not the only person that's had this idea and is developing something. I'm going to be the first person to try it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, being first to market, from a business perspective, you've got to be first to market. That's why Amazon is as big as it is. It's not because there aren't other companies like Amazon and no one else had the idea of a big online shop. It's because Amazon did it first. And what's interesting about the Amazon story is um, they made a loss for years before they started making a profit because they saw the long-term impact that they could have as the leading provider on online shopping. And now they've got so many little arms to it. So do you see yourself as becoming, so you've got the priority learning uh, is your tutoring aspect, and then you're going to have this app. Do you see lots of different arms 
kind of coming from it, like the way that Amazon has created lots of different aspects to it, and it becomes a one-stop shop for like online education. Is that how you kind of envisage? That's the plan. I've got big gamification plans for the, for the next stage of it because I'm, I'm still a big kid at heart. I still play FIFA. I still play Hearthstone. Basically, the games that, you know, the average kid and teenager plays. So if you can gamify part of it, not so much. Everything that's currently gamified is very, very childish because it sort of seems like there's a bunch of people in a boardroom saying, oh, what, what will teenagers think is cool? And have, you know, they, they have some focus groups on what teenagers think is cool and then miss completely. And what they intended to pitch at teenagers, it ends up being more suitable for six-year-olds. I also think there's a detachment. So when, like, people come up with a game, the actual developers are not teachers or working in the education sector. They're just using those teachers to get ideas and then they're creating something. I think you're in a unique place where you've got that passion for gaming and you've got the passion for education, so you can immerse it in a way where two detached groups can't like it has to be a natural fit and something at a higher level where the kids will be able to engage but learn at the same time and a lot of that is such a basic level that any adult if you give any adult the game they'll be able to do it because it's such a basic level and it's been programmed that way because they're either not educators themselves so they don't know how to create something which is really challenging that's the, the way that I perceive it I think there's a great disunity in the way that companies currently work they don't have all the expertise in-house so yeah. when they go out like out of their company to get that, they don't always get the entire idea. They get aspects of it. Absolutely. And in terms of having different like arms as well, I kind of make this joke with my students because I talk to business. I talk to my students about business quite a lot. They, they ask about it. And I sort of like, you know, make, make the joke that, oh, yeah, one day I'll have a massive business empire. You'll, you'll be buying a priority learning car. You'll be buying a priority, priority like we'll be a state agent. It'll be everything. But I, w- I would like to do it. I enjoy running a business. I enjoy finding solutions to problems. Even, like as a child, I would much rather do a Sudoku, even like four, five, six years old. I'd much rather do a Sudoku or like a, a junior crossword than colouring in. I hate colouring in. A jigsaw or a jigsaw. I love jigsaws. I love to solve problems. I just found it fun. And the harder the problem, the longer it took to solve, the more I enjoyed it. And this is why I enjoyed the non-verbal reasoning in the 11 plus exam. I thought it was just a lot of fun and games. It's like, oh, this is so cool. But people thought of it as work. I was like, this is so fun. No, I really enjoyed it. Strangely, I enjoyed the verbal reasoning more than the non-verbal. I'm very visual. So for verbal uh, verbal reasoning is more... um, yeah, it, it is. There's like aspects where they put letters and numbers and you have to decipher. But I think because I'm visual, I quite like the idea of things missing and and like the cube stuff used to really, the spatial awareness would knock me off balance a bit. I was like, oh, I can't imagine what that looks like on an angle. Um, but things like that are, do you think, okay, so this is an interesting question and probably a bit controversial as well, because we're probably going to have lots of 11 plus tutors listening. Do you think 11 plus is something that should be tutored or should it be a natural thing that the kids do? Because it is a natural way of thinking. The way that kids think is different and it shows some sort of intelligence, if you want to call it. I don't like using that word because it goes against growth mindset. I don't know how else to phrase it at the moment. What's your take on that? Because kids are tutored so much to the exam and then when they get to grammar school, they can't cope. So how do you find that balance? I think, in a way, there should almost be, this is possibly even more controversial, but there should, 
almost be an unofficial six plus. Because from what I know about child psychology, which isn't a lot, but make it fun and solving fun. So what I did as a child and what I've noticed in students that can smash the, the 11 plus without tutoring, the toys they would, I always ask the parents, what toys did you give them as children? It was always a toy where they had to solve a problem rather than follow instructions. For example, Sudoku's, Jigsaw's, Lego without the instructions. I would say if your kid likes playing with Lego and they're very young, the instructions make them figure it out. One thing I noticed, the biggest skill gap or in children's ability to do the 11 plus is the problem solving skills. I've had kids sort of 12, 13 or a bit younger that I can teach factorizing to, to get it. You can teach them any method, give them a set of instructions as complicated as you like and they can follow them perfectly. And other kids that would struggle more with that, but if you give them a long wordy problem, they'll just figure out how to do it. Or you can tell they're thinking about it and really trying to figure out a way to solve it. And there's very bright kids that can GCSE would might be like sort of grade seven, eight, nine, more seven or eight students that as soon as they see something that isn't follow this set of instructions to do the question, immediately go, I can't do it. I was like, you've not, you've not even thought about it though. You've just looked question for five seconds and said, I can't do it. Whenever I used to play computer games, my mum would always say, you must read the instruction book. I'd say, no, I want to figure it out for myself. I'll just press all the buttons and see what they do and figure out the patterns. And I've always loved to try and fail at things. And I think that's a, I want to say maybe a skill or a personality trait that I. It's the mindset, right? So growth mindset is a concept of failing is your way of learning. And mm. failure is a good thing. It's a positive because once you fail, you learn where you've went wrong and then you can go and you can learn from that and put things right and if you never fail you never get challenged you're always you're not reaching your full potential if you're not failing essentially because you're not pushing yourself so I think I think six plus would be a bit crazy having a, a six plus test but I see the con I see why you're saying that because from that young age you can you can you can see the kids that are problem solvers and are likely to go on to become entrepreneurs and to kind of become the innovators of the future. You can see that from a young age, right? Because they they do things slightly differently. Um, and then you can see others who are uh, working to the exam, which is what you're talking about at GCSE level. They just get really good at sitting the exams. Do you not think that you can switch mindsets later on, though? No, from what I know about child psychology, no, which isn't much. So there might be someone that's an expert on it that will say, oh, no, there was this study that says otherwise. But I th think it's six. It's either five or six. There's a window that closes quite early. And that win there's a window for children to become multilingual very easily and a window for, the for those problem-solving skills, that try-and-fail mentality. And once, that once a child gets past a certain age, that window closes. So I think it's possible to, basically, the, the younger children are, the more malleable they can be. Um, so I, the reason I say a six plus is not to make them sit down and study for an exam. It's more to teach them to try and fail at things and to just give stuff a go. Though I think if it was an official exam, it would become all about targets and hitting a certain grade. And then it, you would lose the essence of what you're trying to create there, which is the problem with education at the moment. There's things there that are implemented to kind of build these skills and mindsets, but it works against it because of the way that they're then implemented into the system. Make a six plus if I was to design it, I wouldn't have it as a written exam. I'd have it as a person in a room that basically just gives the child a few problems and 
they just say to the child, just talk me through how you're going to solve this problem. And if you want to solve it, you can do it. But the most important thing is how they approach the problem. Um, the, the, the example I, I see at GCSE a lot is for GCSE maths, the density volume questions. You've, you know, you've got a sphere that has this density and another sphere inside it with this density, and you've got to figure out a ratio of some kind. And they just look at that and go, I don't know how to do it. I say, why not? I say, well, I don't know. They'll say, like, show that the ratio of the masses is four to three. They go, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. I, I can't see where that will come from. I'll say, well, I can't either. I don't have a clue where that four, that four to three is going to come from. But I know what things to try that might it's sort of like poke until it hurts. Just try things and eventually you'll, it'll just fall out. Yeah. I do think, though, um, because there's a lot of research done about how long your your brain is still developing and then it continues to develop until you hit around 30. So the front part, your decision making part of your brain is still developing until you're much older, which is why young drivers are so reckless <laughs> when it comes to driving. So I do think you can still I think it's harder. Definitely. I think as a child, you can easily mold a child to think in a certain way. And the words we use with kids are actually destroying them because from a young age we're telling them to fear large audiences they develop a sense of public speaking they develop all of these kind of insecurities because of the way that we kind of tell them things and so I think language is really important but I do think you can still do it until you hit 30 so sorry for those people who are above 30 <laughs> but yeah I think I think it's harder I think you can still probably change your mindset because I don't think I always I always had that side of trying out things but I I've not had the same upbringing as you because I wasn't home educated so I wasn't kind of free to do things I was I got really good at sitting the exams and it wasn't until I left uni and I realized exactly what was like what was happening I just got really good at it and I didn't really know anything um so the way that you approach problems I can't do it like that because I've never done it like that and I find it really difficult but I reckon if I spent time around people who constantly spoke with that kind of problem-solving approach, I think you can pick it up. You need, I don't like the phrase, but you need a safe space to fail. And I went, I did go to school for four years before being home educated. And I was always the kid that would go charging in and then come out crying to fall over and hurt myself, hurt myself or the monkey bars. Uh, I wouldn't do the junior monkey bars. I'd go straight to the ones that were five times my height, fall off and break a bone. And when I went, my parents only sent me to school just before year one started. Um, and I, I took that approach in school, just dive in head first, try stuff, fail, scream, run away screaming because I hurt, hurt myself or injured myself in some way. But then I, I got bullied quite a lot in primary school because I would just try things. And I don't think a lot of schools are the best environment for kids to fail in because you'll get made fun of. Oh. That's not a way to sort of instill in children that trying and failing is good because they get scared of it very quickly. If you, for example, put, if your teacher asks the question, you put your hand up and get the wrong answer. People are going to snigger or laugh at you very often. No matter, no matter how sort of pages they put in their anti-bullying booklet, it's going to happen. So I don't think school, that's why I'm sort of a big advocate for home ed, obviously for parents that are able to do it. I know a lot of parents aren't. I mean, we might, me and Jesse might not be able to, but I'm a big advocate for it because it's a, it's a safer environment for children to try and fail in. And I think that's 
probably the biggest factor, fear of, a fear of failure. So do you think that kind of approach that you've had from a young age where you're not afraid of failing has kind of helped you in business as well? Because you're not afraid of doing something wrong. You're like, let's have a go at it. If it fails, I'll learn from it and I'll try something different. So do you kind of have that approach in business as well? 100%. You absolutely need that approach in business. Otherwise, well, you need that approach if you want to grow a business. You don't need that approach if you want to run a small, successful business for yourself and get a nice salary and that's as far as it goes. But I've very much got the attitude of speculate to accumulate, take calculated risks. What possibly helped as well is I played a lot of poker in university and to a reasonably high level. And that is just calculated risk and into stocks and investments recently, again, calculated risk. So you've got to, I think you've got to take the approach of try something and not be afraid if it fails because you might have the best business idea in the world. You might have done all the planning. You've got 100 PowerPoint presentations on it. Everyone around you is telling you it's a great idea, but the market still might not want it. You have to give it a go, right? You've got to, because you've no idea. In business, you've no idea how something's going to turn out. Is that the difference between becoming a business person and an entrepreneur? So a business person is someone that doesn't want to take big risks. So they have a business that works, that is bringing in an income, that can provide for them and has that stability. An entrepreneur is someone, I think that's the way that I see the difference. An entrepreneur is someone that is okay to take a risk and then see where it goes. Yeah, no, I would agree with you there, actually. Because my, my dad doesn't describe himself as an entrepreneur. I don't describe myself as an entrepreneur because I think it's got... A, you are, though. I think I might be, but I don't like to describe myself like that because in my age group, it's a very, like, it's a very cliche thing to describe yourself as everyone wants to be an entrepreneur right yeah, it's the classic joke of like you know apologies to anyone called jake the first name that came to my jake 24 entrepreneur amazon drop shipper and they've taken <laughs> some amazon drop shipping course or how to make a million dollars a day on youtube i don't see that as being an entrepreneur because you're creating you're using a model that already exists and has always worked so it's a replica business. That's a business. Opening a corner shop is a business. Mm. It's a tried and tested method, right? I My approach to what an entrepreneur is, someone that invents or creates something that's different, that's innovative, that hasn't been tried or tested before. Aspects of it might have been. So like your tutoring aspect, that that's a business, right? It's been tried and tested and it's worked. But your app, that's I think that's your entrepreneurial side where yeah. it's different. Yeah. No, I, I do agree with you. I just hesitate to call myself that because there's so many other people that do and you know they're just an Amazon drop shipper. I think it's been misused. The definition of entrepreneurship is not used um, properly, but then that's a completely different conversation. There's a lot of things that are misused in the English language. So in terms of spotting opportunities, what would be your kind of top three kind of tips to people? So 2021 is coming around the corner. What can they do to spot an opportunity and and to feel confident enough to go ahead with it? Because I think part of it is also to feel confident in your idea so other people buy into it, right? If you're not confident, no one's going to buy into it. So what are your top three tips there? Well, in, in terms of the buying into it, my attitude is build it and they will come. So there's that Julius Caesar. But what if you don't come, though, and you've spent thousands of pounds on it? Then... That's then, then you're in the probably 95% of entrepreneurs that fail. 
But you say that, but you've actually done a lot of groundwork, though. So you're not just buying it and waiting for them to come. You understand the market really well to know it's something that people will need. There's a pain point. It's that calculated risk. Yeah. Like, it, it, it still it completely sucks. I've got all the plans. That I could use it and think, yes, this is brilliant. And everyone else will use it and go, well, that's useless. It's not really saving me anything. You know, or it saves me some time, but it takes me time to use it. So, you know, overall, it doesn't save me any time. So, you know, great, but not for me. It could still completely fail. The security I've got is I know it will be useful for me. So even if no one else uses it and it doesn't take off, it will be software I can use that will save me time. And in I reckon in about five years, it will pay for itself in the time it will save me. So even if it fails... It's not going to fall completely flat on its face. I'll be able to use it; it'll help me. But you know, you can look. I've looked at the market. You can look at the market. You can see the problems people have. But you still don't. You still don't know. That's what I mean about calculated risk. You you have to expose yourself to risk in order to, in order to grow. But it's it's calculating like how much risk are you exposing yourself to, and how sure are you that the pay off? So I think okay. Your first point is calculate the risk. Yeah. and see if it's worth taking and if it is go for it because it's still going to be a learning opportunity if you fail yeah and it, and if you're going to fail how how is it going to fail are you are you going to have to like sell your car and you know you've been saving up for a deposit for a house you're going to have to like throw that away or you're going to have to sell your house if you own one uh, okay if, so having a plan b in place yeah but not necessarily having a plan b but having a Having lifeboats. If the ship sinks, make sure you've got lifeboats so you don't drown. You don't necessarily have to save the ship. You just need to make sure you get out of it unscathed and you sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, dust yourself down and say, well, that didn't work, but oh well, it, it could have done. You know, if there's, I, I'm, this is the math coming into it now. If there's a, if you're sending pulling numbers out of thin air, £10,000 on something that has a 50 50 chance. Of working, it needs to make twenty. It needs to make you twenty thousand pounds to be working. So if you if you spend ten thousand pounds on something, you think will make you hundred thousand pounds. It only needs to have a ten percent chance of coming up for it to be worth it. But you you need to be able to obviously, if it doesn't work, not sort of lose sleep over the ten thousand pounds you've spent and lost, sort of like betting odds basically, which in which in a way is sort of how one way to calculate risk to put some numbers on it i like that i like that approach okay so your first point was to take a risk a calculated risk second one is to have a lifeboat or have lifeboats around you so then you can pick yourself up if it doesn't work what's your third takeaway point that i think people would find useful initially if you can if you have the time to spare spread yourself very thin to start off with, cover a lot of things at a not very advanced level in order to expose yourself to the maximum amount of problems. If you spread yourself over a lot of markets or a lot of niches within one market, you're exposing yourself to potentially more problems that you can encounter. You need to look for problems rather than looking for solutions. So basically just give yourself as much opportunity as you can to discover a problem. It doesn't necessarily mean tutor things you can't tutor. I, When I started tutoring chemistry, I, I charged oh, less than half of what I charged for maths and physics um, because I just wanted to give it a go. And I said to people, well, I'm not as gen up on it. Well, when I started, I'm not as gen up on it as I am maths and physics. 
but I'm, but I'm going to charge you less. So if you want to pay less for something that's less good, that's up to you. So spread yourself thin, do things you're not necessarily an expert in, but be transparent with your clients about that. Because I think there's a lot of tutors that I've seen, like I call them give it a go tutors that aren't necessarily transparent about it and possibly passing themselves off as experts when they're not. So spread yourself thin, but obviously be transparent to your clients that you're not an expert or you're just trying this out for the first time. They might be a guinea pig. So as long as they know that, because then whenever, as a tutor, when you take on a client, they're exposing themselves to risk. They have to minimise that and they can't minimise that risk if they don't know all the information, right? Exactly. And they they take a calculated risk. They're like, well, I'm paying this amount of money because I think this tutor will help my child. You, if, you're, if you're completely honest about what you can offer, and if that even if that isn't very much and they decide to go for it, then they they know what risk they've taken. I really like that one. And I've noticed that I've actually done that. So over the last 10 years, I spread myself really thinly. I tried lots of different things. And then, and I think the business that has come out of that as a result of it has been a problem that I saw again and again and again and again. But I didn't want to work on it because I didn't want to at the time. And then when COVID came, I saw it as an opportunity. So I think the third point is really good do spread yourself if you're starting out I think people can get really put off that like when they're first starting out and nothing's working out I know what you mean lose confidence and or like just want to stay like stick to what they know stay safe and happy when things don't work out they get oh I know what you mean they get disincentivized is that the word no the one that I was looking for but that will work (laughs) so yeah they they, yeah they they don't want to continue they go oh it's not working right let's go back to my day job right and they give up really and I think that's part of the problem people give up really easily you got to be stubborn and stick it out. And I think <laughs> you've done that, right? With your app, you're like, I'm going to get get this to work, even if it means I'm going to lose an arm. Yeah, and even if it means it's, you know, sleepless nights. That's another, it's not a point of how to spot opportunities, but before you even think about looking for opportunities, you've got to be willing to do it for the long haul. You've got to be willing to do the 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. And that isn't, that's a lot more than people realise. You think about it, 80 hours a week for me at some points would have been, well, not the moment because I'm on a break now, but 80 hours would be, I'd think, well, what am I going to do with all my free time? You think about it, that's 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's 84 hours that's Monday to Sunday, you, you start working at um, 8 a.m. And that doesn't mean finishing at 8 p.m. because you're going to have food. You're going to probably go out for a walk. You're going to take breaks in that. I, I'm not counting the, the hours as in like how long you're sat at your desk for. If you're scrolling through Facebook or on your phone or watching cat videos, that's not counted in the hours. I would actually time myself on my phone with a stopwatch. When I was working, I'd start it. When I stopped working, I'd stop it to make sure I did those 12 hours. And then when I'd done that for a while, I didn't need to do it anymore because I was just working solidly through. So that means 80 hours a week would be starting at 8 a.m. and finishing at about 10 p.m., seven days a week. Because you need to obviously cook, eat, go for a walk. And that's horrible. It's People underestimate how much time and effort it takes to start something up they expect especially if they've come from and I think that's where you and I have been lucky because we both started out straight from uni I did as well I went I went and dabbled in employment but after but I started off straight from uni like you and when you do that 
you you develop a sense of dedication towards what you're doing because that is your life essentially but if you've been in employment and you're doing a nine-to-five and then you're coming into business you want to keep it to nine-to-five because you um your evenings and your weekends are precious because you've you've kind of become accustomed to having them but you don't have them when you're starting out a business if you if you want to grow and scale you don't have that quality of life for a good few years and I think people underestimate that that when they see something successful they think that people have done that doing a nine-to-five and that's not true there's a lot of work and a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you don't see and I think a lot of people do a great job and I've done this on my on my profile I'll put a great image up of how I'm coping with everything some of the time I'll put stuff up when I'm not coping with stuff but people kind of give this illusion that things are great and and I think that creates a false sense of what's expected when you're starting a business but it's true it is a lot of work yeah if you and if you're the sort of person that values their weekends and their evenings that's absolutely fine but you're never going to be highly successful in business if, if that's what you want well that, that that is absolutely fine like my fiance is like that she likes her evenings she likes her weekends and she's not particularly risk averse so you know, she's trained to be a teacher, which still is a lot of hours, but it's not quite as insane as, you know, 80, 90. There were times where I was doing 100. I remember when, when I start when I first started, I was getting about five out, four, five hours sleep, most for a good six months. My, my record was 120 hours of work in one week. I've not timed, but I, I remember when I first started this current business, one of the days I did 18 hours. The next day I did like 12 um, and I was on only a couple of hours sleep and it, it's just ridiculous, right? It's crazy. I think now I'm starting to, it's leveling off. It comes back to what Richard was saying. How do you delegate? And I think first of all, my kind of take is you need to know what to do first to then be able to delegate it. And until you've done everything in your business, you don't know how to do, train someone up to delegate. And you need to take into account that it's going to take one time to train them and two times to manage them. How much time are you going to save in managing them? And how much, well, at the end of the day, business and money matters. If, if, you're, if you're only saving yourself 10 hours a week and your going rate for tutoring is, let's go the average, 30, 40 pounds an hour, then that's saving you about three or 400 pounds. If you're paying them more than that, it's not worth it. You shouldn't delegate. Everything in business to grow has to be a financial decision. Or capital you have the more staff you can take on the more money you can invest to automate things and outsource i also think though if it like sometimes like if you're not an expert in the area so like for, for example for me video editing is not my thing so video editing would take three or four hours where for someone who knows what they're doing it would take them an hour so how much could i earn in that three four hours tutoring or working on another aspect of my business becomes worth it then paying someone for an hour to do something that would take me three four hours and create a headache and then I'd be tired and zoned out from doing stuff on the laptop um so it it, you need to kind of balance that yeah it's again using going back to what I said at the start using your efficiently as possible another thing with running a business as well a point I wanted to make most of the work you do for the first few years you will not earn a penny for you don't earn money for uh, doing budget plans you don't earn money earn money for doing taxes you lose money you don't earn money for replying to emails 
Um, you, you especially don't earn money for replying to emails of people that end up not signing up. You don't earn money for helping people that have technical issues. You don't earn money for setting, um, registering a company's house, for setting up your business email, for setting up your website, for making your website look pretty. You don't earn money for most of what you do. And I think that's why it's really important to have the right price point for you. So you can make back that money at some point, right? Because I think people don't, people look at the hour and they're like, oh, but if I go up to 20 pounds an hour, that's going to be too much. People can only afford 15. But that 20 pounds an hour is just not that hour that you're teaching. It's everything else in your business that you're paying for as well. And you, what you need to think about, and this is how I've tried to think about it and I think this is the way that you're doing it as well now is you're increasing your prices because you know at some point you're going to have to delegate to other people so you need to be able to pay someone else to do that Mm. so at what point how can you price what you're doing so you can actually delegate later on in the future you need to start implementing that sooner it it depends what you want to do if you're if your vision for your tutoring business is tutoring for the hour and that's it then 20 pounds an hour is fine if you are actually earning £20 per hour of work you do, I think I earned a lot less than that last year, even though I was charging more per hour. But for total hours work divided by money earned, it was a lot less than that. At some points, it was uh, less than minimum wage. One day I might have done, last year I was charging 35 I think. If I do eight hours of lessons in a day, that would be uh, 200 280? It's actually 24. Yeah, 280. That would be £280. I wouldn't be working eight hours. I'd be working 13 or 14 probably, or a minimum 12. So I wasn't actually earning £35 an hour. I was earning, lazy now, 23. But that's that. Then you're relying on them actually emailing you on that day. But they're not going to, it's going to be spread out and then the conversations on the phones and the emails and the messages. It's going to be over a period of time, not just on that one day. Yeah. Um, so it, I guess it's how you kind of work out what you're worth and, and try and price that. And I think it's difficult. But, yeah. Thank you know, you. I just got an invoice through from my solicitor. Uh-huh. And every email of mine she's replied to and every phone call we've had was timed and billed. Why don't tutors do that? Why do solicitors do it and tutors don't? One, one of them is correct and one of them is incorrect. They're not, they can't both be the correct way to run a professional service. And I know like my accountant, for example, I don't pay like her email because I have them on retainer. I pay retainer for that. And obviously some months don't talk and some months there's a lot of emails going back and forth when taxes are due or we've got questions. So why does every other professional industry either have some retainer model or they time every how long it takes them to reply to every email and phone call? But tutors don't. And it, it's all it's not often clear in a tutor's price what's covered. Is it just the hour that you're sat there tutoring the child, or is it text, emails, phone calls, what's included? So I know you wanted to talk about regulation a bit pro-regulation in any way it would be that tutors have to outline very clearly in their terms and conditions what's included in what people pay and what are classed as extra services how much and how much they cost per unit time and if there are retainer options available 
What I find really interesting, the relationship between price and the expectations of parents. I think that's really interesting. I've noticed over the years when parents pay less, they almost expect more. They don't value your time. So they're messaging you at all times of the day. They're emailing you. They're contacting you. As soon as you start to increase that price, the amount of contact you have from the parents that are paying more decreases. Yeah. Do you find that relationship as well as you've increased your price over time? Because you have over the last couple of years. Have you realized that they're actually asking for less uh, because they're valuing your time and they're realizing actually you're worth this much per hour? So actually, if I'm expecting you to respond to this and this and this, that, that they feel uncomfortable doing that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you don't value your time, why should anyone else? If you're charging what someone working in a, a waiter would charge, then you'll get treated like a waiter. And how does how do people treat waiters? Not very well normally. Mm. Or if you're saying if you're saying my I mean I've, I'm not hating on waiters at all. I worked as a waiter for a couple of years, um, and I actually worked as a waiter um, when I started my business because I, it was not making much money, so I had to work two jobs. Uh, through uni, I worked two or three jobs at various points. So if you're, you know, if you're charging similar to what someone with a lot less skills has or is someone that is using a lot less skills why should you're basically saying my degree my experience is not valuable mm. we'll treat you as if it's not valuable if you if you buy think in terms of if you buy like a, a cheap sofa you're going to throw yourself on it you're going to let the dog on it you're going to let the kids on it if you spill a drink on it you'll just sort of like you know get a bit of kick from all and just wipe it up a bit if you buy a nice expensive sofa the dog's not going on it the kids aren't going near it no one's eating on it so if people treat sofas that way they'll, they'll treat tutors that way that's a that's a that's a strong analogy to use there <laughs> but it does get you to think that th there is a relationship so where people are having a lot of issues just raise your prices a bit and you'll get rid of uh, all the complainers or just structure it differently so you're not you're charging a certain amount up front so people are committing and then they value it slightly differently. In terms of regulations, do you think the tutoring, the education industry should be regulated? I have to give a yes or no answer. It would be no. Why? I, I think I, I sort of believe in the concept of the free, the free the market, the free the people. And I think that market forces often, not always, but often do a better job of regulating than regulators do. Um, because you don't get bureaucracy with market forces. You don't get you don't get people who have no understanding of the industry making decisions for you. On the flip side, I can I can understand why people think it should be regulated because every Tom Dick and Harry is giving well was giving tutoring to go during lockdown. The only thing that was missing was Dick and Dom and the Chuckle Brothers doing maths lessons. Was uh, I, it stopped just before that? But I know there was there was some television personality giving a maths lesson i'm sure i saw that i didn't i'm sure i didn't dream it. i'm sure it was like sam from cbbc teaches timetables or something like that and it really it does bug me and when i see a lot of posts wait i think we had this conversation the other day on fred where someone will say i need uh tutoring in gcse for my year 11 or they won't mention gcse they'll say i need math tutoring for my year 11 and there'll be like a blank Facebook profile asking someone to send a message on WhatsApp for O-level tutoring. It makes you think, well, you don't want the parents to fall for 
people who clearly don't know what they're doing, have no understanding of a curriculum. But on the other hand, you think most parents would see through that anyway. The only thing that does slightly bother me is sort of like the, I'll just, I'll call them fake actors rather than tutors, pretending to be something that they're not. When, if you do a little bit of digging, say through their website or um, just through posts that they make, you don't really know what you're doing. So you shouldn't really be doing this, but they give the impression that they do. Um, and you think there's going to be there's going to be people take up this person as a tutor and pay them a lot of money and don't get their money's worth. I'm I'm tutoring a lab now who for GCSE maths was never taught anything for the two years they had their tutor. They went from like key stage three maths knowledge to GCSE, and every lesson they did a past paper for two years. Don't you think it's part of on parents to kind of monitor what they're paying? It's their money, right? They're paying service. So should they not have some sort of way of realizing? Because if you are inviting a tradesman into your house and you're expecting work to be done, you would be monitoring them, right? You do not leave a tradesman on their own and just lock the door and walk out and go, okay, I'm going to go shopping in the meantime. You would be there in the house monitoring their work because you know there's a potential that they're not going to do it properly the first time. So you would be there keeping an eye on them and I reckon until you feel comfortable that they can do it and if they're a regular person at some point you'd be like yeah I know I know that they're going to do the work so I think when you're hiring a tutor or an educator or someone to work with your kids there's that expectation on the parents to keep an eye on what's going on initially until you are certain that they are doing what they should be doing with them don't you think that's the onus is on the parents because they're the people that are purchasing I do to an extent but in defense of parents how are they to know if the tutor is doing a good job or not? I think if you're a, if the kids go into a school, the test results will be very telling. If they're doing tests every term or something like that, you will see an improvement. But if someone is working through worksheets continually and not teaching new concepts, isn't that another issue in itself? Because I get a lot of parents say, oh, we've just been going through worksheets with our old tutor or just been doing questions and they're not really taught anything. You actually teach stuff. I'm like, you do not, you not, your child's not been taught anything. I mean, these are home educated parents where there's a, an expectation that they'd be taught content. Well, I can see where if you're working with a school kid, you would do more question based stuff because they've already been taught content to some degree. But I think you can notice very quickly if someone's good at what they're doing and if someone's not. Notice if someone's terrible, but I think for parents that say, like the you know, parents that make you know, a lot of parents say, Oh, I've not done GC, I can't remember any maths at all. If this tutor is persuasive in any way, it's very easy to con the parents. So, oh, okay, yeah, you know, they're doing great, you know, they're doing fine. You know, I think it's best that we do questions, we just need practice, they just need to learn exam techniques. That's the issue. There's it's easy to con them, and obviously, it's, it's easy to, to con the child as well. For the, for the disingenuous tutors. But is having regulations going to stop that? Because that can still happen. Regulated, you can pass the exams, you can do everything, you can have the stamp of approval that you can do this, but you're still not pretty great at it. You're just mediocre and you're just getting by. And because you've got all the paperwork to support you, people just don't even look then at your service. No, I agree. And that's why I'm still against regulations. I don't have that problem. Yeah, I, I don't know what will solve that problem. If anyone can think of a solution to it, has a business idea for you. I mean, obviously reviews, but that kind of reviews, just having, well, I, I don't use Truthful so much anymore, but when I was on it, if you got anything less than a five-star review, that was it, you were done. Because 
people only ever gave five-star reviews or one-star reviews. Whereas with TripAdvisor, if you see a four-star review for a restaurant, you think that's, that's probably pretty good. There might have been like, maybe one of the waiters wasn't great or the dessert wasn't very good. But if you see a four-star review for a tutor, you think, why, is it, why isn't it five? So I'm not convinced the review system really works. I'm not convinced regulation would work. It's tough. I don't know what the answer is. Market speaks, right? If you are getting work, if you're doing a good service, people talk about you mm. and you build that reputation very quickly. And if you're not, they're not going to help you if I'm that aspect, right? But I think when you're starting out, that's really tough because yeah. you're competing with people that are already established, that have the market already, and it's tough to break into that. So being able to stand apart and have something about you that's a niche helps and I think your niche was home ed that was mine's has turned out to be it's just finding what your niche is and then running with it yeah and, and you, you do need that I mean word of mouth is the most powerful thing especially mm-hmm. when I do smile I don't bother you know, on um I assume you're on like various uh advertised for a tutor pages a post will be up 15 minutes from last year and I'll have 30 comments I do sort of have a, a wry smile at those because I have a read through read fewer few of them I think so first glance, which ones you can tell are serious and genuine and good tutors and ones that's literally just copy paste from another post. You can tell if someone's taken the time to respond to a post properly. I think this is a bit of a hint. When you're doing marketing, don't copy and paste. It's so easy. You're going to, people are just going to scroll through. They're not going to read your comment. Make it a bit more personal to the posters asking and it goes a long way. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean building is regulated right and there's still bad builders there's still cowboy builders software development is regulated and i have first-hand experience of bad development there so yeah i don't think regulation will solve it i think it will just create more red tape and it's one of the tutoring is one of the sort of few areas that it's a, a very emerging market Potential. There's there's nothing great out there at the moment as like a, a one stop shop, or e- even like a a few that you would think about. If I said to you rattle off five tutoring companies, you really you might be able to rattle off five, but most of the people listening wouldn't have heard of most of them. Whereas if I if I say to you um, rattle off five uh, rounds of chocolate that you like, you'd be able to name five very quickly. Probably and everyone would have heard them. They might not agree with you, but they would have heard of them. Or rattle off five car manufacturers, you'd be able to do it. Really interesting. So you think there's a big market at the moment to have something that's very unique and branded that stands apart, that gets well known? Yeah. I mean, there's there's Hegarty Matt and Dr. Frost. I think those are the first two that will come to mind. I've not heard of either of those. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've not heard of either of those. They're, they're more used to schools. Well, yes. what was one? Hegarty Maths. Hegarty Maths. Is, have you heard of my math? I've heard of my maths, yeah. It's so like, that's used a lot in primary school as well as secondary. It's similar to that. Like, th- those are the ones that would come to mind. And then you might say, like, they're, they're good, but as they're more for schools than if you're a parent, it's like, oh, my kid's struggling with maths, where should I go? There's not, like, a, a list of things to try, whereas if you want to buy a car, you know your budget and you think, well, I'll look at Kia, I'll look at Nissan, I'll look at Volkswagen. I guess there's a, there's a few. There's, I tend to point people in the direction of BBC Bite Size and Khan Academy. Like they've become yeah. really well known in the education sector. And then BBC Bite Size, they've got some really good content. It's limited, but it's enough to know the basics, right? It's there. 
and you know it's going to be good quality because they've got the budget to be make sure that everything on there is correct you'd hope right so i i would send them there without checking it i just say yeah bbc bite size khan academy those are the two kind of go to that i would kind of suggest but there's nothing for live teaching yeah there's nothing for live teaching khan academy is good but i would i wouldn't say bbc bite size is particularly inspiring but it's got the content. So you can say, if you want to know what's on the curriculum, just go there. It's uh, bite-sized. You can figure out what you need to know, the basic. I don't think it's particularly yeah, engaging, but it's there and you can make use of it and it's free. Well, what do you expect from a, something that's free, right? But from a live perspective, I wouldn't be able to pick five from the top of my head, I don't think. I mean, there's Tutorful, but they're an agency. And you go on Tutorful, then you've still got 200 tutors to choose from in your area. So how do you how do you choose i mean just think about it now there's ixl and save my exams which is decent but again not particularly inspiring but yeah so i think it's very much an emerging market and i think there's going to be a lot of exciting developments in it in the next 10 to 20 years well even sooner i think covid's going to have sped up that kind of need for more online quality i've seen an american one called chen i've not looked into it in detail there's loads of companies now emerging and I think it's going to be an interesting so I think this is a good spot to finish on as well like spotting opportunities there's a big opportunity guys <laughs> create something that is that stands apart that gets people talking that becomes the next Khan Academy but from a very kind of personalized live teaching perspective because nothing like that currently exists I think the biggest problem the, the biggest reason for that is you can't scale yourself true so you've got to have a team and then it's a case of finding quality people and just to give you an idea we're currently looking to hire and we've had 200 applications for this one one specific post 200 applications whittled it down to 12 i've taken a couple of first interviews phone calls second interview zoom calls and now we've got it down to two lesson interviews and i'm still not 100% feeling it so it's so difficult to find the right kind of match for your team culture and for what you're trying to achieve but there's loads of interest and I think it's having a process in place where you find people that become part of the culture of what you're trying to develop in your team and that's difficult I'm not it's not an easy thing I can tell you <laughs> having interviewed so many people it's not easy I had a, re- I had a request today and I off some of um someone that I tutored a few years ago so I was recommending you uh you got any availability and I said no sorry I can put you on a waiting list or pass you on to another tutor that I work with and they said oh no the recommendation was for you so we want to go on your waiting list and that's that's I think one of the biggest issues with scaling is if you're a great tutor it'll be you that's recommended it won't be your brand so I guess if you're just starting out that was probably a problem I uh, a mistake I made if I could go back and change something what would it be in, in a way not make me as the thing that people recommend but my brand because then it's much easier to scale it and delegate that's so, what I've done that, that's a mistake I made in my previous business so when I started this up I was like okay I'm going to be leading the vision and the culture and the way we do things but I'm not going to be on the teaching front 
I cover. So when, it, when a teacher's away and I cover, then there's an issue because they're like, oh, we want Sid to come back. And it's like, I'm just short-term cover, guys. I don't permanently teach. And I think it is difficult, but you need to then train your staff up to get as good as you. And I find that so difficult. The way you do things naturally has developed over a period of time, and it's going to be the same for you. You've developed that from your experiences, from you learning, from teaching people. How do you then replicate that? training and pass it to someone else it's so difficult how do you take a step back and go what is it that I've actually learned and how do I tell someone else to do things this way without kind of restricting them too much because if you if they start teaching in reflection to how you do it they'll lose part of that passion because it's not coming from them those two things are so difficult and I think we're at different parts of our business where you are doing all the teaching at the moment I'm taking a step back but the work doesn't stop just because you're taking a step back from the teaching managing people is such a full-time role and trying to keep those dynamics working like people are not talking to each other and I found initially when it was a small team people were coming straight to me in the team and I could tell them exactly I wanted to do stuff now because they're speaking amongst themselves they're not doing it properly, things get lost, then things don't get done. And I'm like, uh, so there's, there's loads of other issues. So I think um, it's interesting to, to have this discussion. And it'd be nice to kind of touch base again in a year or two time and see how far you've come and see how far your app has come. Yeah, new, new year, probably not too much. The, the deadline that we finally got written into the contract was 1st of June. So First of June, I'll either be saying, yes, it's great, it's out, or I will be saying, back to square one again. I'm at next year, as in next December. So about that point, you'll be up and running, you will have established it, you'll have the marketing going, and I think it'd be a nice point to kind of touch base at that point, 12 months' time, and say, what have you, we could do it sooner when you launch, but I think at that point, it's exciting, because then we can see how stressful you are now, trying to get it, get it to launch Read that on me now and see how the bags under my eyes change over the next year. Then in the the, the last uh, part you said was a, a great way to sum up the conversation. The work doesn't stop. It doesn't. It would just be the tagline for running any type of business, especially in children. The work doesn't stop. You know what you should do? You know how they do like pictures over a year? Just take a, take a picture of yourself at the end of each day over the next year. And then we'll see like how less tired you look over as you get towards the end of next year when you're launching and you've got to... less tired than I look. Yeah, because once you've launched, you should be a bit better, right? Less stressed out. Well, I'm not holding out hope for that. I think that's, that's one approach I take. I'm always a, a pessimist. And then if it goes bad as it possibly could, I'm prepared for it. If it goes better, I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think I've got a similar outlook. Like you don't plan for the best success outcome. Like you have a goal, but then... I think if you have a particular goal and you just focus on that completely, you disregard all other opportunities that come your way. While if you are then kind of, you've got a goal, but you're kind of open to changing directions, I think it's a better outlook to have because then your expectations aren't as high if it doesn't go out the way that you want it to work. But it's been a great conversation. I think we've touched on lots of different topics. And I think, yeah, it's interesting how you put into words some of the stuff that I kind of think, but I can never get into words, like the three things we discussed about how how to spot opportunities right 
So the first one was you take a calculated risk. The second one was to have a lifeboats in place for when they go wrong. And then what was the third? When you were going through it, the third one popped into my hand and it went, it was calculated risk, lifeboats, spread yourself thin. That was it. Spread yourself thin. So then, yeah, you can figure out what the problem is that you really want to solve. Yeah. I think that's really good. And prepare yourself. If there was a fourth one, it'd be prepare yourself for the long hours. Forget a work-life balance. Yeah, you need to live and breathe and dream your business for a good few years before it's um, able to kind of, I, I don't know, is it ever going to be at a stage where you can kind of enjoy life without having to worry about it? I don't know. So you know, the whole like sort of sitting back on a beach, sipping the pina colada while a business takes care of itself. I don't know. I don't know if that only happens in movies. Just with Amazon businesses, right? Yeah, just if you, um, you know, do this five-step method anyone can do to win a million pounds a day. I don't know. I think a realistic goal for me is to be at a point where I can... My, my next goal, my next sort of work-life goal is to be able to take weekends, most weekends, and actually take a weekend, not just only work six hours on a Saturday and six hours on a Sunday, actually take a full weekend. That's... I've reached that point. <laughs> but I work my Monday to Friday like crazy um, and I'm up till 2am and then I'm like okay weekend switch off I say that occasionally I'll be like oh, let's just do a bit because I don't know what to do with my weekends now I can't really go out anywhere um, I'm, I'm tied in because of Covid so it's like well what do I do with myself so I end up doing a bit of work anyway um, but I can take the weekend off if I, if I want and I think it's been a long time coming. I think it's taken 10 years to get to this point. Um, <laughs> so, um, this is my weekend plans. This is the um, this year's uh, senior mathematical challenge. Are you doing it yourself? Or are you creating one? No, I'm doing it. This is this was this year's one. The um, This is the A-level one. UKMT. They're really difficult. So you're doing the A-level equivalent. <laughs> I'm doing the A-level fun. How I spend my free time. Thank you so much, John, for taking part in the first ever episode of UK Educators Podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Any last words that you want to give to other educators that are listening in? The work never stops. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, guys, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.